0: Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian
1: food products. com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network broadcasting over thirty-five weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hey folks, Michael Mekka here. Welcome to Food Talk this week. Rainy day here in Brooklyn. It's amazing. Spring I don't know, spring sucks in New York City. Yesterday was gorgeous and today it's rainy and it's cold. Who knows? Summer's on its way, spring's on its way, that's what it is. We've got a great show today. I've got a couple of guests, one on the phone, he'll be with me live in just a moment. Live from Spain, Anthony Moralda, who was the proprietor of a restaurant that probably none of you remember, because I don't know who listens to this show, but a lot of young people I suspect. Um The restaurant was El Internacional. It only existed for two years, 1984 to 1986, in what was then Tribeca, a very different place than you would think of in terms of today's Tribeca. That's for sure. Um, It was a combination of restaurant and the most performance art. Well, not almost. It was a restaurant that (laughs) was doubling as performance art. And it, it came on my radar uh, because there's a book that came out recently uh, that was published. It's an art book. It was published by Art Publishing, D-A-P, um, and El Internacional, New York's Archaeological Sandwich is the name of the book. They had a party out at PSO PS, that, you know, the MoMA in Brooklyn in the old school that I couldn't make. But I, I got a copy of the book and just fell in love with it. So he's gonna be my first guest, second guest in studio at the, after the break at the bottom of the hour will be one of the owners, Allison Nichols, of Peralandra, which is a natural food store, a, um, a grocery store, an organic natural foods, whatever you want to call those things. But I love this because this is another sort of New York historical uh, story. Uh, the, the store opened in 1976 in Brooklyn and has been going ever since. So that's, a, you know, 40-plus years. Um in any case, let's let's get Anthony on the phone because he's talking to us from Spain and it's ten o'clock in Spain as I believe. Sir, how are you?
3: Hey, hi, fine. Very good, thank you.
2: So first of all, this book's amazing. I have to tell you by by way of background, I first moved to New York, I graduated the Culinary Institute in 1982, in January. And I moved here, and my very first apartment in January of 82 was on 310 Greenwich Street, which was a Mitchell-Lama building. These were high-rise, affordable, middle-class housing in New York that somebody illegally was subletting me. So, like, my first impressions of new york as an outsider because i was from philadelphia up until then was living in tribeca for nearly a year and it was such a different place back then it was there were there was there was nothing there was no supermarkets there was no restaurants i mean there was like ethnic delis like an indian or pakistani guy ran a deli where i could get like milk and toilet paper and to get food i often would walk to chinatown to go shopping um odeon I don't think it even opened quite yet, but Odeon would be one of the real pioneers down there. And then Montrachet after that in terms of fine dining. But it was basically an industrial district that had, I mean, Bazzini Nuts was still roasting their nuts down there. Martinson's Coffee was still grinding and roasting their coffee beans down there. Harry Wells had a big distribution for eggs and butter. I mean, it was a, It was kind of a food, it was ending its life as a food distribution and manufacturing neighborhood. And unbeknownst to it, it, it was kind of transferring into what it would become next, which is those big buildings became homes for artist lofts and illegal lofts and all sorts of stuff. But there wasn't much going on. And I remember your building because it, it, it stood out so visually. So, so tell me, what what possessed you? What what made you do? I mean, I know you had a food background and an arts background, but give me the kismet of how you discovered the space because I know it's in the book and I read about it. And and because it it had been Teddy's for years. That's what it was when I was in in in, in the late seventies and eighties. It was Teddy's, which was an Italian restaurant uh, that had been Teddy's since the forties with with I think two owners on that the whole period of time. Then the last edition of Teddy's went out and you came in. How did you hear the space in the first place? How did you find it?
3: Well, let me tell you, I, when I moved to New York in 1972, I was really lucky because I was uh, looking for a uh, loved uh, experience. I mean, coming from Spain, you know, a loved, uh, it said something, then, you know, you, you've been listening a little bit, but you don't know what it is about. So anyway, I found... I went uh, to buy some materials um, at uh, Pearl Payne. It was uh, fantastic. Uh, it was a yep. palace of the artist with all the yep. ingredients necessary for to do art. Whatever. I'm going there and I'm seeing a, 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 an unannounced a Love for rent 228 West Broadway. I said that sounds good because Pearl Payne was so Canal Street. Yep. West Broadway was on the corner. I'm going to see the place. Wonderful place. Anyway, <laughs> I got that place I rented wonderful so what I had before in front of the the, the space too, I had the teddies and this was I guess a destiny uh, I, uh, good luck I don't know what it was that but I could see from across the window from my loft I could see teddies so I saw all those 70s um, uh, action there, a lot of limousines, a lot of a uh, uh, little bit uh, haunted, a little bit closed, a little bit, uh, I mean, people were saying, oh, well, you know, that place, uh, you know, don't go, you know, you never know. That's probably some mafia place, whatever. I was young. I was, you know, dedicated to other things. But anyway, I was observing. And what's happened in 1986? In 1993, I was looking for a space for a restaurant because uh, Monse and myself, we decided to try to open a place in New York and try to bring uh, from Barcelona the air and the texture and the taste of especially her restaurant because Monse had a restaurant in Barcelona, a quite famous restaurant, very avant-garde. And what up? we found a place for renting it was again the same teddy. So that means I knew the place but I never been inside. I went to see, we went to see the, the owner, Mr. Sao Cucinota he told us a lot about the place. He already sort of rented to other people and the place went closed, whatever and we got the keys, we got I uh, very excited when we crossed the door and we saw what was inside, because inside was, for me, was New York history. We saw many, many layers there. We start to check few things and uh, take over the, the carpet and see under the walls, and we find um, some, of course, 50s after we find a little bit more of mosaic tiles that were not from the 50s, so we're, they were really from the 20s, from Europe whatever. So that was part of our excitement and part, uh, I could say, the way to work on this archaeological sandwich project. Start to the history and from that do a place with uh, contemporary food and contemporary uh, uh, ambience, if I can say.
2: But it it was, I mean, I feel terrible t- saying this to you, but I mean, it, in the years that you were open, I was a young cook and I was broke <laughs> and I was working six days a week. And on my day off, I probably slept as late as I could and did laundry. <laughs> so I never, ever got to set foot in the place. I, I knew about it, but it only existed for a couple of years. Um, by 84, by late 83, I'd already moved out of the neighborhood. But, um, you know, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking like, this is amazing because it, it, it's it's so far ahead of its time. I mean, I think got, like, we're doing this radio show now from a place in Brooklyn called Roberta's that was kind of this crazy, casual, let's try and make great food in the middle of nowhere project. Very low budget, but the food was great. And it's, you know, kind of hipster-ish and young and fun. And I mean, what you were doing, this was like 30 years ago was really literally like almost food plus art plus graphics plus at that Mm -hmm. time modern technology because it's not a coincidence that the first macintosh computer came out while you had that restaurant um ridley Ridley scott did the, the apple tv commercial ridley scott the guy that directed blade runner did the tv commercial and you were using the very first macs they ever made to create stationery to print your menus out to just do things with
3: well let me let me explain you i'm an artist, and uh, my partner uh Monce, the chef yep. and she's a chef, but i mean she has also a big uh a creative part, so what we want is to to experience something interesting, uh, just, we're not interested in just putting together a restaurant. I mean, you know, restaurants, there are thousands of restaurants. We're interested on, uh, on work with food. I myself been involved with food since the 60s as an artist. I always thought that food is the best, the short way to connect. With two people. I mean, it's like a straight line. You communicate to them. They have something to say because they recognize food is about survival, but food is also about uh, everyday. It's about domestic. uh, It's about uh, ritual. It's about uh, violence. It's about business. It's about designs. I mean, it it touches everything. So, anyway, uh, we're interested on doing something special with food at Oh, but also, we're interested to, I don't know, bring um, some energy from our Mediterranean part. You know, this is uh, something that we all have been uh, uh, captivated by the way that people here share food. I mean, the tapas. Tapas yeah, were very, very unknown by the time. So unknown that the people confuse themselves and they call us the restaurant and ask them if there was a topless restaurant <laughs> right, so people, we, right people were we confusing say, no 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 not topless tapas T A P A S you know they didn't know about that so uh, what is tapas what well, tapas is just a, a one way to um, to communicate to dialogue to share to to just not getting the full plate then after you can move uh, yourself, you know, no, just something a taste, and you share that taste, and you, you take another one, and another one, I mean it's, it's a way, uh, it's uh, about conviviality, and it's about, uh, so as I said it's about sharing, so anyway, that was one of our intentions it also I mean, as an artist, of course, I've always been uh, extremely interested about how you know, the image can um, sort of uh, introduce uh, uh, connections, uh, information, links to, to what you're eating. So the idea of the video tapas, videotapes, I was working on video, and the first, first idea of the restaurant that we were planning was uh, having a video tapas or videotape bar. Anyway, international... That was something else because the place was something already very much uh, uh, designed by itself. You know, there was very strong character, so it was not about putting a videotape. So we had, we had a video menu. We had the first video menu there, but. <laughs> yes the image was very important the moving image the the aesthetics the textures the not only the food but also the environment and of course this sort of working with these different uh, steps of um, um, 50s, 20s, 50s, 60s. So the way then we plan to uh, do this uh, uh, intervention to this uh, uh, change in the facade, uh, you know, camouflaging the facade and bringing that uh, sort of pattern that was coming back from this seventies, uh thick stone that they were put on. So it was it was it was just a piece and it was perhaps the right time, and we had the right people, probably, and it was right away, became extremely popular and famous.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it.
2: it's, it's incredible. So let me describe, we're going to get you, we're going to get get in, into the restaurant in a second, but so, just by way of history, this was, as far as we know, the first tapas bar in New York City, and you were really 30 years ahead of your time, or 30-some, in terms of, like, the small plates, because in the last five or six years, everybody in New York's doing small plates. It's as if nobody wants to do appetite their main course desserts anymore. All these menus are divided up into little bites, bigger bites, littler bites. You know, it's crazy. And you were doing it 30 years ago. Um, the, only Mexi- uh, Mexi- the only Spanish restaurants I remember back then were like the in the village, I think, the Sevilla Inn and El Quixote in, in Chelsea. Exactly. Um, and th- that was it. I mean, it was, it all, everything in New York was Italian or French, period. Uh, maybe a, a couple of German and Swiss places here. So you're a complete outlier. But So... <clears throat> 219 West Broadway is a very small building that I think used to be two brownstones that were at some point combined, but on both sides of it were buildings that towered over it. So right from the street level, you had this these two big buildings, then like a little building, and as you said, you painted the front, it kind of looks like, I don't know what it looks like, it looks like fake stones, you're right, it looks like how people used to, have that was a style in the 60s. Um, so it kind of looks like... Um, a Dalmatian print or uh, an animal kind of print of black and white on stucco with a big awning that comes out that says tapas bar and restaurant. And then on the roof at some point, not from the opening, but a little later on, you installed this like three ton. It looks like it it doesn't look like it, it's a copy of the crown from the Statue of Liberty that sits on the roof and hangs out over the street. I mean, that's
3: crazy. Uh, well, uh, no, that's just, uh, <laughs> this is just a proposal uh, for getting the people some, uh, you know, some ideas. I mean, you need to stimulate people. It's not only feeding people. People can be fed everywhere. You know, the food is survival, and we, we all have food. So people, they came to an international, yes, they were first Confused, They asked many, is that an art gallery, is that a museum, is that a restaurant? <laughs> because they were they were really uh, start to see first the facade, seeing the, you know, we had this uh, wonderful uh, display case. Uh, there were different artists uh, working on different interventions. Uh, so, they were set away, prepared for something else. So uh, this was very much our idea. And because, you know, you need to give people uh, some uh, chance to think about some other things. I mean, what is food? food yeah, of course we need food. But <laughs> food is connected to so many interesting other things. So this was part of our idea of printing the newspaper. Right, uh, you, had, you had, had your own newspaper, right. Newspapers, right. and, uh, you know, uh, there were about uh, not only the history of the play, but also about uh, what, you know, food has to do with culture or the history, and also this was uh, very much part of our uh, um, intentions on the menu. We uh, we had this, uh, as you mentioned, you know, this uh, wonderful Apple program, so we had we did we print ourselves our menus so there was a one way to a certain uh bring this uh other uh, you know other and change and you know, other other uh, other elements other ingredients to food so and that was you know enough to make people to feel the place comfortable and of course people love the place so we had big you know names and wonderful people, and uh, but more than the wonderful people, what is interesting is that why you know um, uh, Andy Warhol uh, order uh, uh, you know a couple of times he came the same you know butifarra mojette you know beans and and and, uh, and butifara who's for us is a very clear, classical uh, and uh, uh, modest and country type of food so. with the food you you got people involved and you got them you know reaction so so that was uh, very very interesting and especially I can say it was uh, uh, interesting for the team that was working there we had a wonderful team and most of them Many of them, I can say, they were Spaniards from or from Catalonia. They were, you know, just uh, making their life and starting their life there, their finishing their, their um, you know, school and doing starting a new career there. And so for many of them, and this you can see on the book because on the book you have all the memories, you can see, you know, what they said about the place. You know, there was. For them, very important. They, the mark their life. You know, they meet people. They, they find out about you know then the connection with art and food, food and performance, you know, food and and, uh, and, uh, and fusion, you know, this idea of an international, the fusion of, of different styles, whatever. So <laughs> that was our our, our idea of uh, creating a platform, a stage, you know, a restaurant as a stage.
2: It, every bit. So you'd, you'd come in, there was a section of the floor that was an internet, it was flags, international flags. There was that huge uh, fist, Tank that kind of divided the front room and the back room. That's epic with bubbles and that that thing that you brought up from Brazil. I think you flew, you flew it on your lap on the plane. And then <laughs> describe this. It's like because this is really another. Like you would step off of West Broadway and it was an otherworldly experience. And yet yeah, everybody, Jean Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol. I mean, they filmed Don Johnson. with they filmed an episode of Miami Vice in the restaurant or outside? Which is, I mean, that was like the hottest TV show on on in television at that point, right? But talk about this. The the Columbus. Trophy bar because I've I've really never seen anything like this. I, actually, the whole restaurant I've never seen any, anything before or, or or after like it since. But the Columbus Trophy Bar is this crazy bar with these statues and vertical iconography columns. You describe it. I mean, you've got you've got garlic hanging, you've got salt cod hanging, you've got peppers hanging, you've got hamon hanging. You know you've like three tiers. You describe it to me because you have these. Also, these—I um, well, mean, mm-hmm. there was kind of the centerpiece of the restaurant. You walked in; the bar was to the left. All those mm-hmm. beautiful tiles behind it, but it was this, these these crazy columns filled with liquid. Describe it to us, because it's like it's otherworldly. Yeah.
3: Well, that was the idea. You just come in; uh, you had this type of. Uh, Carpet, you know, on your feet, you see all the countries of the world. This is not something very usual. You know, usually you don't you don't walk on on flats. Mm-hmm. And after you could have, you know, you you could see some information. There you go to the left, metro D, the metro D. it was very very uh, for me uh, uh, symbolic. It was like a uh, a kind of melting pot. Uh, uh, icon, and right away you had on your left the bar, the Columbus Trophy Bar, or on your right you had the first dining room, the um, the uh, Turquoise dining room. So, well, the bar, uh, yes, uh, bar was like a I love trophies, I mean, you know, the aesthetic of the trophies, and because it's like, you know, there's a uh, uh, grandiose architecture, but it's made of uh, aluminum, you know, anodized aluminum, bright colors, fun, with the little statuettes on top. So I, I've always been very fond of uh, trophies, and um, and I collect few of them, whatever, uh, so the bar, it was transformed as a trophy bar, and on top, of, of course, Columbus. Why Columbus? Because we have in Barcelona uh, a, a monument, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a quite an uh, important one. I mean, you know, yeah. I understand, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like him because he, you know, he is a symbol of the conquest and conquista, conquista. But- He's there, you know, he's part of our city, and I was already, by that time, in 1984, when we opened the restaurant, I started. To, I was already working on a project, a project about uh, possible uh, romance. Uh, uh, and the future marriage it came, you know, between two monuments, the Christopher Columbus monument in Barcelona and the Statue of Liberty of New York. So anyway, <laughs> my idea of uh, Columbus, the icon uh, of Columbus and, uh, and also the liberty with the crown, as you said, you know, they're already in my mind. So anyway, the, the bar was quite quite interesting because already you had all those display of tapas, but the same tapas you had it in the in the dining room. I mean, you know, people could eat, sit down, and take also and eat the tapa. So, and the bar was, of course, very um, colorful. Uh, the <laughs> our star drink was the blue margarita right blue margarita was was invented there we you know that was part of uh of our um, uh, i can say it, you know uh, our uh um, home uh, <laughs> um stamp you know like people asking for well let's see. but What's happened? We had also blue margarita on a perón. I mean, perón are typical from from Catalonia. Yes, yeah, it's a crazy. The, the, the
2: drinking, the me, thinking thing, a right. Drink, yeah, a right? Drinking
3: vessel right. who has a very special. <laughs> perhaps you can explain better than me a, a very special shape. And for us, you know, it is a. a Totally a popular icon let me you try know, and explain I let guess. me try and explain the shape. find the Perons in, a, in high uh, uh, good uh, restaurants you find perons in in a sort of a popular places, so we had Perons there, so the people already could spend the time. We had beautiful music uh, Bob Jones prepared wonderful uh, soundtracks, so that was enough for creating their good atmosphere, but of course, after you could see. The your right on the um, on the back on your right, you could see the open kitchen. So again, another another icon because open kitchens, you know, uh, they were not very very common in that time. No, you and, were one of the uh, first. One of the first. And that great. Uh, um, uh, 50s uh sort of uh, kidney uh, uh, looking uh ceiling uh, wonderful uh blue and we we did of course, we found some of those things there, but we transformed completely. I sort of had to, you know, during three months during the summertime, there was like a, my, uh, you know, my um, uh, my palette. I was walking there and, and mixing colors and, and bringing things, and so there was there was the you know like making making a piece. That's it.
2: Yeah, completely. I and mean, this is a really like a bespoke one-off restaurant. And let me just describe what a perón is to the audience that's listening. So it's a drinking vessel that almost looks like. A kind of a modern-day decanter. Uh, one, it, it's kind of U-shaped, but not exactly. You pour the wine into the big end, which is then going to be the handle, and then you lift this whole thing up, and it holds a fair amount of liquid. We're not talking about six ounces or ten ounces. It holds more than that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then it comes... The, the drinking end is a little, almost like a fine... Uh, it's like a conical tube that gets narrower. So technically, you could probably hold this thing up at the end of your arm, tilt it, Pour a stream of wine into your mouth. It's like very fun, very kind of tongue in cheek, but that's how you did it. And I think at one point you even had a Peron Olympics
3: exactly we, but you describe it very well yes the Parole Olympics was one of our hit uh, events but um, uh, it was uh, also you know parole is something that you pass to one to each other to the next person so it's again is another tool of conviviality of uh, sharing And uh, but we had also some other uh, good uh, events there you know we had we uh, had the crazy uh, one the Statue of Liberty
2: I, thing we, we had the high school band you had actually had the street kind of closed. You had it there was like you had the the Statue of Liberty top draped, you had high school bands, you had people outside. What was that about? That that was like
3: um well that was a way to open the restaurant to the area, to the neighborhood, neighborhood okay. You know this this were Young neighbors, I mean, you know, um, Tribeca uh, was just, it was uh, just born, you know, uh, people start to know the name and, but. It was all those few artists start to get uh, ready there and buying lots. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm saying buying lots. When I came, we were just renting lots. The things start to change a little bit, just a little bit. But uh, many people who were there already didn't know about it. So what we want is to open the doors. We create for that a, a, a sort of a decor, like a cape. We uh, dress the uh, facade uh, with a beautiful uh, um, long uh, curtains, dress, uh, bread uh, with some uh, elements, black and white, that was sort of combining with the facade. And we had also this uh, cape uh, or dress uh, involving, uh, in a certain way, um, camouflage, like if I can say, the crown itself. So we had this wonderful band who came and all the... All the waiters did a, a processional piece with the parons and uh, and the trays, and we went all around. The- and, uh, the block and uh, when we came back in front of the restaurant ooh, they went on, on top and they sort of uh, opened symbolically the crown and uh, and we started to serve to the table the big, big table on the street and everyone was there and we had Peronis uh, with different juices and also margaritas and we had the interesting thing is that we used the all they signed letters we use as a, as a tray, as a platform for serving the food. So all this was combining a sort of a, a open air and a public celebration.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it, what a scene. Yeah. So, again, the name of the book is um, El, Inter- El Internacional, 1984-1986, New York's Ar- archaeological sandwich. We didn't get into that part, but, I mean, it was quite the thing. And, and, and kudos to your chef, really. First tapas bar in New York City. Um, so many for a small First Small Plates restaurant, one of the first open kitchens I certainly have ever heard of. And, and I know she was really fastidious about ingredients. She was seeking out a Galician bread and found a bakery in Jersey that made it for her. Uh, really interesting ingredients. That, that, uh, Brian Miller reviewed you for the New York Times. Gail Green loved it from New York Magazine. Um, your customers included people like Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Bescat. This was at a time when you could actually see. I, I remember when I used to take the subway. Um, Keith Haring's work was in the subways. He would just chalk up. There was like all those advertising signs were vacant because the subway was a place nobody wanted to be and no one was going to pay for advertising. So Keith would bring his chalk down and just mark them up. So, I mean, you could have actually gotten a, a knife and scissors and walked home with original Keith Haring's from that era all over the place. But it was David Byrne, Robert De Niro, Umberto Eco, Michael Douglas, Lorne Michaels. I mean, you had, you know, the New York arts and and, and, and shakers coming as regulars.
3: Yes, there was um, also um, because I think, as I mentioned, it was just, I think, the right time, you know. And also there were uh, certain circumstances at uh, the same times I would like to say, you know, there was uh, a Palladium, which has opened at right. the same time. Right, the club. Um, Aria just opened a little before uh, before us. So there were, there were some sort of... A, um, energy on the air. You know, this was not <laughs> ourselves alone because, uh, you know, people stay until later yeah. in our place, in our bar, and after they're going to the area, you know, 2 or 3 a.m. Yes, ecstasy was um, a drug of the time. So people were doing like, blowing. Um, yeah. I, mean, I think that's, that's it. That's the mid 80s, and that's, uh, I don't know if that's still possible to do
2: no it's <laughs> okay. completely changed no it's, things it's... Had
3: changed we you know yeah we had <laughs> and, those uh, also there was you know there was uh, many things happened since that and yeah. many people disappear and uh, there have been ads there have been, you know many so it's it's all this together who also makes um, this memories much more strong
2: and then you end the book sadly that you know they're trying closed after two years and then a few years after that as is so often the case in New York City um, as I it, it was a it was a small building. Clearly, it could be knocked down and built up. You could acquire air rights from surrounding buildings. So the end of the book is actually the, uh, the discussion for the, the vote from the community board to allow the building exactly. to be sold, demolished, and go up, which is kind of a, a, a sad coda to an amazing place. But it's a great book. It's a great story. Um, thank you belatedly for coming to New York. My only regret is I never got a chance to walk in the door because I was a little too busy trying to make a living back then. But it's a great book, and it's a great snapshot. And you guys Good. were really, really pioneers. Thanks so much for coming on. Um pleasure talking to you take care enjoy Good. life in Spain I'm
3: glad I'm very glad you like the book I think the, the book has a lot of uh, all, all those um, things that we're talking about uh, I mean it's supposed to, to give you if you read it if you look at to give you some of those energies of the time yeah, totally. and especially give you some uh, samples of the, of the aesthetics also who are very particular thank you so so much
2: thank you so so much take care again the name of the book is El Internacional like 1984 New York's archaeological sandwich i'm sure you can find it online it's great it's an art piece it's worth it it's a great snapshot into the first new york that i knew i moved here in 82 and that's what i moved into stay tuned my next guest is in the studio she'll be live with you in a second allison nichols who is one of the partners in a store that's been in brooklyn for years natural food store we will talk to her about what she does and about the history of that store so it's sort of a, a historical show today forgive us but that's that's what it is we'll be right back after this message Hey folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients. And these days we have so many options to choose from. Well. I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, When I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table, that's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home? that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years, with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzo, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome, Colavita's living in America. It's a great trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. Hey, hey! Welcome back. Food talk here, Michael Lameco. I am your host. I am here weekly doing the show for the time being. Anyway, anyway, Allison Nichols is my guest. She um, is a partner now in a store that's been in Brooklyn, really kind of a main state, Perelandra, and we'll get to the name of that because wasn't that a C.S. Lewis book?
0: Yes, it is. That's
2: such a weird, geeky reference. I'm yeah, like, why? It is. It's a science fiction. <laughs> it's like it was like a trilogy of science fiction thing, and that was the second book. Yes. Okay. Yep. I I, bet, I guess you could have called Lord of the Rings or something, but it, that wouldn't have been so good. Um, so the store is pretty epic because it's been around since 1976. Yeah. It was opened by Steve Hoos, who was 26 at that point, unemployed. Um, and and I, in 1976, I was two years out of high school. And so the early 70s on the East Coast was kind of the beginning of the whole, I don't want to say like hippie health food movement, but for lack of a better term, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. I mean, it kind of came from the West Coast East, as so many things in America do. Yeah. Because the West Coast is unbridled and doesn't have traditions, so most every food thing and lots of art things start there and drift their way here, where we're we're much more ingrained. But I remember as a high school kid, so early 70s... um, in these kind of wealthy, educated towns outside of Philadelphia. I lived in West Philly, which was none of the above. Mm-hmm. But I went to school in the suburbs on the main line, so we all had cars and we'd drive out there. Uh, so in towns like Bryn Mawr and Winwood and there were these, you know, little, like, uh, macrobiotic stores and and some of my friends would have hippie moms who would be like making their own granola and stuff So yeah. you guys kind of go back to the beginning of that health food yeah. thing in the city Yes, and you've survived this long. Yeah, um, it's gonna be
0: our 41st anniversary on the 17th it's of
2: this month crazy You yeah. you came on board in 2002. Is that right? Yeah mm-hmm. and, and with a bunch of degrees you have uh, Well, you tell it. I I mean, I'd want to.
0: Yeah, I'm a nutritionist. I have a degree in biology. I have a master's in nutrition. I have an MBA. That's all. That's all. That's all for now. I we'll see. Drop, Who knows what the future holds. I
2: drop that of college after two <laughs> minutes. Um, so you never know what happens. So that's crazy. And what got, what led you into food? I mean, the nutrition is obviously that's a rudder. So so you've been thinking about this forever. Well,
0: I was going to school while I was working at Paralander. I started working at Paralander when I was seventeen, and I had been vegan for Jesus. years well,
2: prior that was my to next that. Question. Yeah. So. You, and, so keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Sorry. So I'd
0: been vegan for several years. I stopped eating meat when I was 11. I decided I want to be vegan when I was 12. I read Diet for a New America, John Robbins. Great book. Still holds up. Read it a couple years ago again. Um, and I thought working at a health food store would be a good fit as a vegan. And um, so I was hired there as a cashier right before I started school and just stayed on. Kept oh, high working.
2: High school kid. I yeah. love it. What made... so? you were a bit of an outlier back then so i mean there there had been well I guess when i started doing radio in 0506 we started to sort of you know tiptoe around the vegan vegetarian thing cuz it occurred to me that the statistics that I kept reading that I would, if you Googled stuff to, you know, the government, the official statistics seem to be so off base because I think even today, the government official estimates of vegan vegetarianism is like 3% of the country.
0: Yeah, it's really low. And but, par- it par- but it isn't.
2: But like I know it like, seems like if you live in this town. Yeah. I mean... A third of the kids I know or a quarter of the kids I know that are under 35, that's what they are. Yeah. So I just can't imagine. Like We're not talking about like closet vegans. No. We're talking about numbers that don't reflect a reality in this town.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're on the coasts, if you're in a big city, I mean, you you probably know a lot of vegans. It's
2: super common. Yeah. And restaurants are now making huge carve-outs for them and have, and have to. I mean, yeah. you're not going to survive. Yeah. I mean, my days in the kitchen, if a vegetarian, God forbid, when they came in and they would order, it would just be like... We'll give them some tornado carrots Pasta primavera. Yeah, it was oh, whatever. Always the pasta right. primavera. Right, whatever, whatever four vegetables we had or yeah. something else. And, and now you could, you know, eat like a
0: king yeah.
2: doing just vegetable-themed stuff. Yeah,
0: and I mean, when I was first vegan, that's what it was like. You know, it was like there was a tiny health food store where I grew up, and there were some vegan items. And coming to Brooklyn and going into Paralandra, it was like paradise. this. Yes, it really was paradise. You know, it was just everything I could ever have wanted.
2: So that's a great story. So you really started out as a kid and worked your way up the whole way. Yeah. Um, your partner's now. Tell me about the – if I if I had been in your boots or in the in, in Steve's boots, you kind of owned that market for a while. Yeah. And then Whole Foods comes.
0: Yeah, sure.
2: The Time Warner – actually, Chelsea was the first I, – I remember when Time Warner opened, because I work out uptown um, – And I knew about Whole Foods, and I thought, I'm going to go check this out. It was literally like the second or third day. Uh, it's the entire ground floor footprint of the Time Warner building. It is huge. Yeah. One of the first man. real supermarkets where you can actually push an honest-sized cart through honest-sized yeah. aisles. I
0: mean, it's a suburban-sized supermarket. Correct, which yeah.
2: which, is, which doesn't exist here. But yeah. there, there was a line out the door because they had exceeded their certificate of occupancy. So it was like when 30 people came up the elevator, they let 30 people down. Yeah. By the second week it was in business, between the retail and the and the food preparation because it has a huge sort of cooking thing. It was the highest grossing Whole Foods in the country, yeah. and I think it's probably been that way. And they've done nothing but grow since then. Yeah. So you're up against them. So I mean, how does that work? How do you navigate?
0: Well, and it's not just Whole Foods. No, it's I mean, not it's, just it's Whole Foods. it's the entire landscape of yeah, food. Correct. You know, it's online orders. It's Blue Apron. Right. Um, I go yeah. into
2: ShopRite, some dookie supermarket down yeah. by me in South Jersey, and they actually have this expanding organic section. Oh, I'm sure. like, are you kidding me?
0: Every mainstream grocery store right. has a pretty extensive natural food selection. I mean, in, in Brooklyn, you can get... You know, almond milk at any bodega. You know, any literally anywhere you are, you can get natural foods. And
2: then there's the Park Slope Co-op, which is like a whole nother story. We won't get into. Yeah. But so, so putting your MBA hat on, what explains your survival all these years, in spite of what has really been ramped up competition?
0: Um, I think we just do a really great job. You know, we're really good critical thinkers. We're always looking at what the customer experiences and what we can be doing better, what we can be doing better than other people. Um, Our selection, it's a really, really well-curated selection. I'm the buyer, you know, and I'm also a nutritionist. That
2: was my next question. And so
0: everything goes through this vetting process of me. You know, I I look at it and I decide whether or not it meets our standards, which are exceptionally high. And we have customers who have been shopping with us literally since the store opened 41 years ago. Who continue to come in? Sometimes every day, sometimes more than once a day. I see people. I'm not kidding. There are people no, I new see York three is, times a day.
2: That's new. York. I mean, I yeah. shop for food every day, so yeah. I don't. I don't know why I have a full size refrigerator. Yeah. I could have one the size of this. Co- I mean, basically, I don't know what I'm eating for dinner until I wake up that day and go to the market and find out. So yes. that's kind of how a lot of us live.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I see these people all the time, and they they trust. They trust us. They know what our standards are. They know what the vetting process is. They know that there's a human that they can talk to if they have a question. They know they can come and talk to me, you know, that I'm out walking around.
2: At one point, to to this point you're making, I think it was in 2010... All the products that you're using that are prepared products, not in, in-house we could you can control, but prepared, you made sure if they were using soy, corn, canola, or beet, which is, these are super common ingredients. So yeah. These are lipids, these are fats, these are sweeteners, yeah. that they were from organic and non and. And GMO productions.
0: Non-GMO sources. yeah. So starting in 2010, any new item I brought in the store. So that's not just what we're preparing in-house. That's any new item that I'm bringing in to sell on the shelf. Soy corn, canola, beet, those are the most commonly genetically engineered crops. Um, If you have a a product that you want us to sell and it has a soy corn, canola, or beet-related ingredient, it either has to be certified organic, because certified organic means non-GMO, or it has to be non-GMO. And you have to be able to show me the paperwork to prove that it's... From you know a non-GMO source. What
2: a pain in the ass you must be to, to
0: yeah. vendors. But you know what? I, I have <laughs> this vendors. It's not the easy
2: knock on the door. No. Hey, look at my frozen empanada thing. You're no. like no. Nah, and our
0: reputation so. precedes us. People know what our standards are, but they also want to be in our store because customers know what our standards are. People want to shop with us because you know we have those exceptionally high standards. And I have. Um, companies like uh, Brooklyn Deli, for example, they make this amazing uh, tomato achar, this Indian condiment. She started using non-GMO canola oil. Because of you. Because of us. Um, Brooklyn, whatever, they make pickles. She started using organic vinegar because vinegar, distilled white vinegar, comes from corn. corn genetically modified. So she switched yeah, the, to organic vinegar. Right.
2: The really cheap, like those gallons of industrial yeah. white vinegar are whatever they can make it the cheapest from. Yes. In this case, it's corn.
0: Exactly. And yeah. that's basically what it's, you know, if it, it's always, you know, the cheapest is soy, corn.
2: In terms of regular labeling regulations, if I walk into a supermarket now and I want to buy canola oil because I use it to saute, and I spin that bottle around, do they have to disclose? Nope. They don't.
0: No, and um, there are a lot of people have been trying to change that for a long time. But Good there's luck. very powerful lobbyists that are, labeling, that are fighting that.
2: Our labeling laws in, this, in America are a joke. Yeah, and, and, and you joke. know,
0: in the EU, you can't sell genetically engineered foods. It's like
2: yeah, I know. I used to sell in Europe, and I used to sell here, and it was yeah. like day and night. Like they really kind yeah. of give a shit about every even how it's yes. handled in between, like from the truck to the warehouse to here. Refrigerated and this and that. You can't call this this if it isn't then America. It's like pfft, whatever, yeah. dude.
0: So I feel like that sort of underscores the importance of what, what we're you doing do as vetting. Yes, exactly. You know, we're we're doing that for you. That's important to me. That's important to. That's what our store is about.
2: You talk about the customer because that was one of the questions I had written down. Because you, you've been there now fifteen, sixteen years.
0: Yeah. So,
2: and, and as a someone who's running a business that's that old, you really have to be nimble and light-footed. Yep. So that's kind of my question. So how do you... I mean, I've, I've seen businesses, I've been here that long, where it, the business sort of went through its natural life cycle because it was selling to the same aging customers who yeah. uh, it got to the point where if you picked up the obituaries, they were losing customers on sure. a daily basis yeah. and doing nothing to appeal to a younger set. Yeah. What have you done to be able to turn that around as the dynamic as the retail? Because that's not easy. Yeah. I mean, turning a retail store around, is like they always say that expression about like doing a, a U-turn in a battleship. Yeah. It doesn't happen. It's a big moving thing. You've got momentum. You've got a, a customer base that likes you for what you are. Yeah. How do you change? and appeal to what must be a, 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 a cross-generational younger audience?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I think staying true to what the original vision of the store was, which was to really provide the highest quality foods. And so this is what I do. This is my whole, this is my whole life. Anywhere I am in the world, anywhere I'm in the country, I find really cool specialty items and we sell them. You know, we're the only place on the East Coast that sells a number of items. Um, So you can come in our store and every week we're getting new products. You know, we have this very dynamic selection of products and I think that's really exciting. I hear people get excited about the products that we sell and, you know, how they never never know what we're going to have. Um, But we are really flexible. You know, we're very responsive to the feedback that we get. And being a smaller business, that's one of the benefits of being a smaller business is you can, you know, have a conversation with a customer and think, oh, that's a great point. Let's change that now. Here's how we're going to do it. And by the next day, you know, we've we've changed the way that we're doing something.
2: The advantage of being independently owned and and, and having. Exactly.
0: you You know, I I am accountable to, you know, my partners, my employees, my customers. I don't have shareholders that I need to. Right. be pleasing all the time. So that gives us flexibility <laughs> to make the best decisions that we can. Which
1: is
2: the trouble with Whole Foods. It, I mean, this is, precisely. I want to say, I mean, I was, it was, it was really, a, when Whole Foods first started to open up, I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. It's never yeah. going to work. I was just so, you know, a bunch of patchouli-scented stock wearing hippies from Texas. are mm-hmm. trying to do this shit. And uh-huh. then the thing grows by 15, and I know grocery, yes. grocery sucks. Like, the average profit in grocery, whether you're talking ShopRite, AMP, and Acme, Food important you're talking about, like, a 2% profit and a growth, growth rate that's below that. Yeah. And Whole Foods is growing at 10% a year for 20 years Yeah. and just making money hand over fist. And then they've hit some, some bumps in the road now. Yeah. Um, and cause it's now it's all driven by stock price, Yeah. which means you're beholden to those nuts.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's the big difference. I can make the best decisions for my business. I can make the best long-term decisions for my business decisions that might not be the most profitable in the immediate future, but that I know are the right decisions for Paralandra.
2: And you're also just that right size where you can be hands-on with everything. You're not with looking everything, right? You're not looking to open up 15 new Paralandras no. up and down the East Coast in the next six months. No,
0: you come to that store, you see, you know, it's uh, me and Roland and Steve, and you'll see yeah. Roland and I out on the floor stocking the shelves. Sometimes we're mopping the floor. You know, we're just we're out, we're out doing stuff. It's like we the are original, truly hands-on. It's like the
2: original fairway when they when they when I came to the city, I was living up there, and they had that one store on 75th Street, yeah. and it was just like. It was them and Cidarella with the D'Agostino's in the middle, and that's all you needed. So you got your fish at one place, you got your cheese at the other place, you got your other, and then you know, get toilet paper at the at yeah. D'Agostino or cooking oil. But it was good. But the owners were always there, and it was, you got that sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of us is there every single day of the week, and we are really super hands-on. And that's I think that's what people really appreciate, you know, the standards that we have. And the standards that we have just keep, you know, it, it keeps expanding. I'm not bringing in new products with Carrageenan because I'm I'm skeptical of the— the safety of that ingredient you know i don't see other places being as responsive to that sort of information as we are
2: dive down on that give me a little bit of bore down on that ingredient and on why.
0: carrageenan yeah um, where, where,
2: why we i mean i i know but why where would we find it what is it used for okay so and it's, why are you suspicious sure
0: so it's a seaweed derived thickener Um, so you, you see it in puddings, you see it in ice creams. I actually have, yeah, you see it in tons of stuff. I actually have an ice cream vendor who took it out of their ice cream so that we would sell as ice cream. Um, there's evidence, I mean, there's pretty clear evidence that it causes inflammation at the very least. And so many chronic illnesses are caused by inflammation. Why would we want to consume a food additive when there are alternatives that we know can cause inflammation? So that's my perspective on it. And I was validated pretty recently because the National Organic Program actually voted to disallow it from the program a couple months ago. Right now, it's an acceptable ingredient in the National Organic Program, but not anymore.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's kind of breaking news. Yeah. How do you feel about all those crazy sweeteners out there that are sugar substitutes? Mm,
0: I mean, I feel okay. You know, stevia actually comes from a plant. plant right, you know, you, plant can, you can grow stevia. Right. Um, things like xylitol, they come from birch trees. When, when there's like a... A, a clear source. I can, you know, I can bring it back to the original source. I feel okay about that. Um, things like Splenda, I don't know. Does we we don't sell anything like that?
2: Figured. Um, yeah. There's been <sighs> the, the the terms organic and natural always kind of drive me crazy. Mm,
0: yeah, people use them interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. Yeah. So
2: you you kind of do. And but the trouble is, the FDA is kind of the gatekeeper for this. Yes, or no, maybe. No. Who is?
0: Is there Um, like an outside body, the the natural, USDA? The USDA, yeah. The USDA USDA. oversees the National Organic Program. So what's the
2: definition now of...
0: Certified organic,
2: yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: so if a product is certified organic, it means there's no synthetic pesticides, no synthetic herbicides, no synthetic fertilizers, no GMOs, no irradiation. Now, if you're talking about an animal product, in addition to that, it means um, sees
2: daylight, walks on them goes out of. Um,
0: you know, there's not like a daylight provision, but they do have to. I think they have to have access to grass. Um, but the <laughs> see, food. I get so
2: cynical when I hear this because I can yeah. just see like 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 companies like Purdue sure. once they. I mean, IBP sells beef. IBP sells beef to Whole Foods. Yeah. Iowa Beef Packers. This, yeah. mo- I mean, the, the, one of the monstrous big three. Yeah. That somehow they, when I guess in the in, in the late '90s, early aughts, they looked at Whole Foods growth and said, I, you know.
0: We've got, we gotta get in on that. We've this. got to get in that sure. and then,
2: sure they've got guys that went to Yale business unders- school are, and they, yeah. and so so they would sit whole, the Whole Foods people would sit down with IBP and IBP would say, What do we have to do yeah. to get on your shelves? And if it was take some stuff out or just you know, slightly jiggle the feed and remove some ant- we're gonna do it because it's too much business, we're giving up.
0: Well I think for something like animal products, for example, so um, the animals can't be treated with antibiotics can't be treated with hormones, and their feed is certified organic. And I feel like that's significant. Even when you have huge agricultural operations, like what you're talking about, that's significant. You know, reducing your dietary exposure to chemicals, yeah. genetically modified foods, antibiotics, yeah. that's worthwhile to me. I mean, my child, I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old, the animal products I give her are certified organic. that That's my my rule. You know, I'm not as strict about everything else, Yeah. but the animal products I give her are certified organic.
2: I remember f- flying to Europe years ago in the 90s when I used to subscribe to the New Yorker, and it was a great typical New Yorker piece, you know, 50,000 words, but it was about antibiotics and animal feed, which is kind of new to me. And then, duh, they are the largest buyer of... Of antibiotics in the country. So forget yeah. you going to the doctor feeling like you're sick. And they, no, 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 no. They're, they're sold by the ton yeah. to to slaughter to, to guys that are raising cattle, guys are raising pigs, guys are raising, and they just lace their diets with it so they don't get sick. Ends up in your food, and we end up with this like residual effect of why do we have these super bugs now? Yeah, because we've been throwing antibiotics at everything.
0: Yeah, so I mean, why wouldn't we do what we can to reduce our exposure? to I mean, you know, we only sell certified organic produce at Paralandra why not do what you can to reduce your exposure to unnecessary chemicals? And the people who are growing your food, do your part to reduce their exposure to unnecessary chemicals. And you th- know, that's a piece of it.
2: I th- and I think, I, I, you can correct me, but the, well over 60% of the public believes that it's better for your health to yeah. eat organic and stay oh, away yeah. from the pesticide. Like, this isn't yeah. like again, Birkenstock patchouli no. smelling hippies. That no, are, it is No, not, no, not anymore. I mean, we
0: certainly have those people and I love them. I mean, I am one of those people. As, <laughs> soon, as, as soon as it's above, you know, 60 degrees, I wear Birkenstocks. But um, yeah, I think uh, people are becoming very aware of the, the long-term impact of, you know, chemical and antibiotic exposure.
2: The term natural, what's that mean?
0: There really is no official term or official uh, meaning for the term natural. Now, if you're talking about meat, there is, uh, that is regulated. So if a uh, meat says natural, it can't have any artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives.
2: But they can pump water into it. It could still be all sorts of things.
0: That's, that's all that it means. That's the only capacity in which the term natural is regulated. So that's it. Kind of so means nothing. It really does mean nothing, which is why you have to shop at a store like Paralandra, where yeah. you can walk up to a person and say, what are your standards? And we'll say, you know, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, no artificial sweeteners, no hydrogenated oils, no corn syrup. You know, and then we've already talked about our GMO standards. Which is crazy. So that's what natural means to us. Right. You know, and, and there's nobody regulating it, so... You need, you need to know where you're buying your food from.
2: Where, where's your uh, production kitchen? Because you have this huge menu daily. You do yeah. breakfast and lunch every day. It's in the store, yeah. It, down Like downstairs? Nope. Like comp-
0: it's what what you see is what you get at So the there's a
2: workspace in the back that's just open?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's an open kitchen. We're actually doing a renovation. We're uh, actually going to be filing our permits in the next couple of days. We're going to be tripling the size of our kitchen. We're going to be doing a, a renovation that I'm very excited about.
2: Does that speak to the volume of food that you're selling, to prepared foods? Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, we've always done really well with prepared foods, Everything that we sell, everything that we make is vegan, even though, again, we're not a a vegan store. We have uh, organic animal products. But um, all of the ingredients that we use, if we can get a certified organic version of it, it is. And that's really what sets us apart. You know, you can go to places like Whole Foods has a really extensive food bar. I'd be really surprised if anything that they're using is organic. (laughs) And literally everything, everything we can get, it's organic. And that's how we're going to continue.
2: What percentage, if, if you don't mind me telling me if it's proprietary that you could not answer, Okay. what percentage of your gross sales is coming from the prepared foods part of your program?
0: A substantial percentage. <laughs> She's yeah. Yes. Okay,
2: I like that. <laughs> well, yeah. no, it's not surprising to me. One I mean, of the, one, I would
0: like it to be more, which is why one we're of doing the, this. Expansion. One of the
2: things with Whole Foods Time Warner that blew them away was like, because they have that sit down space that's yeah. kind of underneath the escalators on the way to the front wall. Yeah. And it was just, they were just. B- bowled over by the fact that so many New Yorkers don't really feel like cooking, want to feel like they're eating well, want it when they want it, how they want it. And that means like now and put it in a box and weigh it and get me out of here. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's, I mean, we're going to have a hot food bar. We're just really going to be hugely expanding our operation. We're going to have a really large case with, you know, 80 different grab and go items every day, hot food bar, soups, sandwiches to order, big coffee bar. um, And it's still... You know, it is gonna be all certified organic and vegan and food that you can feel good about eating. I mean, I've been eating this food for breakfast, lunch, and sometimes dinner daily for 15 years you know and i feel great about it it's like i i see the people who are making it i'm involved in the development of the recipes because
2: you're a nutritionist yeah, yeah it's I really rare to them. have that's, i, yeah. I was, was one of my questions but you answered yourself so that's one of the hats that you wear as well as being everything else in the store oh
0: yeah. yeah it's we literally have our hands in everything that's, and you're that's, vetting that's everything from
2: salt to sugar to fat to wow yeah. okay
0: yeah that's what we look at
2: have you been to rouge tomate the restaurant
0: no what hmm. is that
2: Oh, well, you should go. You should take her sometime. It's good. They've got an (laughs) in-house nutritionist. Oh, do they? It's mostly vegetarian, vegan. Yeah. Wine list is great. Pascaline LaPeltier, Master Sam. She is a monster. Wine list is great. Yeah. A lot of natural wines. Um, So
0: uh, how big is the store? How many square feet? Um, 6,700 square 6, feet. 6,700
2: square feet, which is yeah. a pretty darn big footprint for New York City. Yeah, it is. Address? Um,
0: 175 Remsen Street in Brooklyn Heights.
2: Seven days a week.
0: Yeah, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. We do online ordering. We've had online ordering since 2005. How about that? We'll deliver anywhere in Brooklyn, same day, Monday through Saturday.
2: And, ho- and, ho- and holiday-specific stuff, too, because that's a, such a big deal these days. Yeah you doing Passover stuff? No.
0: We get some Passover stuff.
2: But then but it's a little bit different because you have like religious and kosher and that's sort of a, we're, another line we're crossing. Yeah. We're,
0: yeah. We, we don't, we certainly don't specialize in it.
2: Yeah. Where's the, where's the U.S. stand in terms of organic farming or organic consumption versus Europe with like Switzerland, Austria, Italy, these countries kind of leading the way.
0: You know what? I actually don't know the answer to that. Okay. I don't know off the top of my head.
2: But we've been making strides.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely.
2: And the the store, so it's a bunch of prepared foods to go. You've got uh, what they call beauty products, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean,
0: we're a full service store. I do all of my shopping at Paralandra. I mean, we have, you know, a really large organic produce selection, a great grocery selection, you know, fridge, freezer, bulk, a climate controlled bulk food room. That's outstanding. That's great. Yeah, I mean, health and beauty aids, shampoo.
2: So, you're vitamins. like a, a, a Brooklyn one off version of what Whole Foods always wanted to be.
0: Yes. We mean it. We mean what we say. <laughs> I
2: like that. I love that. I love that. In this world of like, I am, we, we've become such cynics. I just don't believe anybody's yeah. um, anybody's story anymore. And, and, you know, God bless Whole Foods. Well, I know you they know what? were supporting this station, but God bless them. Whatever. We,
0: we, uh, we do the right thing. We're the name. That's come what from? we're about. Why did he pick that name? Now okay. we got to get to So, that. so It's crazy. Sure. So, it's, it's, so it's Paralandra. <laughs> Every now and again, somebody actually comes up. They're really excited about it. I got an email from a fifth grade teacher two weeks ago saying, <laughs> "We're reading Paralandra." I just wanted to know if the name of your store came from the book at my class. Um, yeah. So Steve, the founder, is a big sci-fi fan, uh-huh. and he read the book and. Um, Paralandra is the name of a planet and it's a very lush green planet. And that, the description of it sort of, uh, described what he wanted Paralandra to evoke this lush green, healthy, that's, that's what it was about. And you know, it's really memorable. People hear it and they remember it. They often can't pronounce it correctly, but they remember
2: it. (laughs) So how lucky, this is great for you. So you started this, you started just as a kid, as a high school cashier 16 years ago and now you're a partner and yeah. there's no end in sight because you guys are sort of the batons kind of being passed because steve's gotten yeah. older steve at some point wants to step back if he hasn't already so yeah. I mean, you, you're doing your dream you're living your dream
0: yeah so it's yeah roland and i we're yeah we're we're running the show
2: Congratulations. We do. Yeah, we love it. One one more time. The address in Brooklyn?
0: It's 175 Remsen Street in Brooklyn Heights.
2: Gorgeous Brooklyn Heights. Thanks so yeah. much for coming on. Keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks for do, having yeah, me. Good fight, yeah, fighting the This is wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's what we do.
2: Be good. I think, I don't know who's here next week, but something tells me. I don't know who it is. Well, I'll let you know later on. it will go on the website. We'll okay. find out. Take care. Thank you guys for coming out. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Guys, I'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks, Mike.